Chapter Five of Oscar Wilde and Myself by Lord Alfred Douglas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Mutual Friends. According to the Ransom Book, the biographical details of which, its author admits, have been checked by Mr. Robert Ross, Oscar Wilde was the son of William Wilde, knighted in 1864, a celebrated oculist and aurist a man of great intellectuality and uncertain temper, a runner after girls, with a lusty enjoyment of life, and a delight in falling stars and thunderstorms. This is an ingenious way of presenting a decidedly dubious and unpleasing character to an awe-stricken world. Wilde's father was certainly a knight, but heaven alone knows who his grandfather was, it is also to be noted that while Sir William Wilde may have died a celebrated oculist and aurist, he began life as an apothecary, and for years kept a chemist's shop in an obscure part of Dublin. The runner-after-girls admission, on the part of Messrs. Ransom and Ross, is also very touching, seeing that William Wilde had once been prosecuted for insulting a lady patient, and that everybody knows the story of Wilde's father and the witty veterinary surgeon who rallied him on the subject with one of the sharpest bits of sarcasm that ever fell from a man's mouth. It is perhaps necessary for me to say here that I have never in my life laid any great stress upon the advantages of birth. If a man's manners and disposition are all right, I am not greatly concerned to know that his father drove pigs, or got locked up for stealing spoons. At the same time, I have never been able to repress feelings of amused contempt for that numerous body of persons who, having no ancestry or forebears to speak of, make a point of proclaiming themselves to be persons of family, and invent all manner of legends to support their supposed exalted birth. In the case of Wilde, it is due to him to say that he kept his parentage and extraction fairly in the background, so far as I was concerned. He admitted that he belonged to the Irish middle classes, and prided himself on having risen to academic honour, not with the help of money, but by sheer force of intellect. This was in the early days of our acquaintance. Ultimately, when he had managed to get out of the rut of bohemianism, and to find his way into respectable society, he began to conceive himself in the light of a very great social figure, and it was easy for him to suppose that he was a born member of the aristocracy, and that all his people belonged to what Burke, I believe, calls the titled landed and official classes. I used to smile at these pretensions, and joke with him about them, and he would admit that he was foolish. But the fact remains that to the end of his life he kept up the legend of his high birth and connections, and was eager always to pass himself off as a great gentleman. His biographers have taken up the wondrous tale, and, without saying so in as many words, they lead the polite world of wild worshippers to believe that their saint was what the young lady called a gentleman in his own right. The Wilds were people of consideration in Dublin, 
says the zealous mr ransom his schoolfellows did not have to ask wilde who his father was well possibly they didn't for very different reasons than those mr ransom would have us conjure up down to the time of my first meeting wilde he had never had any real footing in society and though he fought for it desperately during the period of our friendship i doubt if he ever really got it he was too obviously the tuft hunter and the snob ever to be liked by the people for whose acquaintance he sighed i never could see why a man of his talents and mode of life should have been so desperately anxious to be hail fellow well met with some of the dullest and silliest people in the world but there can be no doubt that he dearly loved a lord and would put up with a great deal of pain and inconvenience on the mere chance of a casual word or two with a duchess when our acquaintance began he knew nobody and though his name was in the papers and his picture turned up from time to time in punch you never saw him at the places where he would have given his soul to be he told me that at magdalen he had managed to get on terms with an unmarried duke but before this beam of sunshine had shone upon him for a year or two the duke incontinently married and the duchess intervened and put an end to the intimacy wilde's own set of friends and acquaintances struck one as being a peculiar assemblage but he assured me that they were great and charming people and that they were all on the high road to eminence and fame and being young and unversed in the world's ways i took him at his word and set down my incapacity to appreciate his immediate entourage to my own dullness and lack of perspicacity the first stars in the firmament of charming fellows and world-compelling geniuses brought to me by wilde were mr robert ross and mr reggie turner according to the allegations brought against me at the ransom trial when wilde entertained these gentlemen at dinner he did it in soho and with the help of a shilling bottle of madoc whereas when i lord alfred douglas was his guest it was always at willis's rooms and to the accompaniment of specially imported pates from strasbourg and priceless champagnes in point of fact all four of us drank a good many humble whiskies and sodas at the cafe royal and dined and lunched at the same place without any great effusions of money on anybody's part wilde was a doughty and assiduous trencherman i would have backed him to eat the head off a brewer's drayman three times a day and his capacity for whisky and soda knew no bounds the marvel of it was that he never became really drunk though from four o'clock in the afternoon till three in the morning he was never really sober the more he drank the more he talked and without whisky he could neither talk nor write after messrs ross and turner wilde brought along the late ernest dowson who for some reason or other seemed scared out of his wits mr max beerbohm who giggled prettily at everything either wilde or i said and mr frank harris 
who wore the same costly furs and roared in the same sucking dove way as still continues to delight his troops of friends they were a merry and i am afraid a rather careless company they talked art poetry and politics none of them seemed to have much to do though i believe all of them were fairly busy men and on the whole they were pleasant enough people to meet gradually however the acquaintance between myself and wilde began to strengthen and become more intimate i took him to my mother's place near ascot and introduced him to a good many people whom he considered to be important he met my cousin george wyndham who i believe asked him down afterwards to clouds and at his very special request i introduced him to my brother viscount drumlanrig at that time a lord-in-waiting to queen victoria no two men could have less in common than drumlanrig and wilde on one hand you had a soldier and a sportsman with perhaps a bit of the courtier thrown in on the other hand you had the overdressed bohemian with his hair nicely parted and very anxious to be friendly and charming my brother was amused and though they did not meet more than three times it was years before wilde ceased to talk pompously of my friend lord drumlanrig lord-in-waiting to her majesty i also introduced him to my grandfather mr alfred montgomery who took a violent and invincible dislike to him and declined to meet him again in addition to the people i've mentioned wilde always had on hand a sort of job line of weird and wonderful acquaintances whose names were forever on his lips and whose possessions intellectual and otherwise were supposed to be fabulous he would come a few minutes late for lunch and beg to be excused for unpunctuality the fact of the matter is he would say i have spent a most delightful morning with my dear friend mr balsam bassey a charming fellow with a face like a michelangelo drawing and a mind like benvenuto cellini i would have brought him in to lunch he is dying to make your acquaintance but he has to go down to his uncle's place in devonshire and couldn't miss the two-fifty on any account there would follow a long and highly elaborate statement of mr balsam bassey's many gifts graces and accomplishments his wonderful powers of conversation the exquisite mo he perpetrated and the charming poetry that he could write if he would only take the trouble to live his own life instead of frivolling it away in the highest circles wilde had to my knowledge at least half a dozen balsam bassies going at one time and though i only saw one of them in the flesh i believe they were real persons and that wilde believed all he had invented about them the solitary balsam bassy he produced on an occasion when he could not help himself as the man sailed right into us at supper turned out to be a very mild and inoffensive gentleman who possessed an allowance of two hundred and fifty pounds a year from his uncle a brewer but with no more talent let alone genius than a box of matches 
when i observed to wilde that this particular mr balsam bassey did not seem quite to come up to expectations he became very angry and said that the fact that mr balsam bassey was his friend was a sufficient passport for him to any society i said that i thought it was and there the matter dropped the large number of persons of eminence whom wilde knew in a casual way would of course make a long list but of his friends and intimates the people who so to say gyrated immediately around him i have given a full account it should be added that wilde knew beardsley whom he was disposed to patronise and mr george bernard shaw who was then a writer on the star of shaw he had a high opinion and prophesied for him a future in a walk of life far other than the one in which he has succeeded probably if he had never known shaw he would never have written soul of man while shaw's socialism was a very much redder and more blatant affair in those days than it is now it attracted wilde because it was odd and shaw was irish though a mild liberal by pretension wilde was always a rebel in his heart down with everything that's up and up with everything that's down was his intellectual motto if he had not met shaw he would probably have kept his views about the social order of things to himself shaw helped him to a species of socialism which looks very revolutionary but which is really designed to benefit the rich rather than the poor like pretty well everything else that wilde wrote the soul of man under socialism fails entirely when you come to look into it it is neither fish flesh fowl nor good red herring and its main argument namely that human beings will never be happy till they've got rid of altruism is of course the obvious reverse of the truth it may be that the account i have given of wilde's circle will come with a shock of disappointment to those who have been accustomed to the ross ransom sherard versions as to his mode of life the absence of distinguished names is certainly conspicuous but as i am writing the truth and not a fairy story i am compelled to stick to the actual facts which are that wilde during all the time i knew him was not on terms of anything like intimacy with any of the distinguished people of his day he was continually talking of his various eminent contemporaries as if he were on terms of friendship with them he constantly referred to edward burne jones to william morris to ruskin to meredith to tennyson swinburne browning and the rest and he referred to them always as if he had at one time been most friendly with them whether this were or were not the case i have no means of settling authoritatively i can only speak of the period of his life during which i knew him and was continually in his society namely from the year eighteen ninety two to the time of his death and i say positively that during the whole of that time he never had the slightest intercourse with any of the persons mentioned i believe wilde had at one time a slight acquaintance with burne jones but on two occasions when i myself met the latter at clouds the country house of my uncle the late mr percy wyndham i never heard him mention wilde's name 
i believe he knew ruskin at oxford but only in the way in which any undergraduate could know him if he wished to do so browning he had met once or twice and the same applies to meredith i do not believe that he ever saw or at any rate spoke either to tennyson or swinburne yet to hear him talk of all these people one would have supposed that he was a regular member of their circle when i was with wilde before his downfall and imprisonment i accepted all he told me as to his friendship with the intellectual giants of his time as gospel truth and it was not till long afterwards that it struck me as curious that we never came across any of these celebrities that wilde was never able to get one of them to come to his house and never by any chance went to see them at theirs a good example of wilde's pushfulness in this line of pretended intimacy with celebrated people is furnished by the terms of his dedication of one of his plays to the dear memory of robert earl of lytton i have it on the authority of mr neville lytton the younger son of the late lord lytton that his father scarcely knew wilde and had only met him on one or two occasions and that he might or might not have been flattered by wilde's dedication the same applies to his supposed french acquaintance according to wilde's own account he knew everybody in france who was worth knowing but as a fact he had only the very slightest knowledge of a few of them derived from meeting them once or twice at luncheon or dinner parties at the time he wrote his play salome this question is settled by the articles which have appeared on the subject in france by monsieur henri de Regnier and the vicomte de humieres after he left prison of course nobody knew him but at the very height of his fame and success the facts were as i have stated the same applies to social as opposed to literary and artistic lights when i was twenty-three years of age i was elected to an institution called the Crabbit club which had been founded by my cousin mr wilfred blunt the club met once a year at mr wilfred blunt's country house Crabbit park for the purpose of playing lawn tennis and reading poems composed by the members of the club for a prize among the members of the club were george curzon now lord curzon of keedlestone george wyndham george leverson gower then comptroller of the queen's household the trinity of georges as someone called them in a prize poem lord horton now lord crewe mr harry cust mr godfrey webb mr mark napier the late lord cairns mr lulu harcourt and a lot more mr blunt had made oscar wilde a member of this club and wilde attended one meeting it was the custom that any new member should be proposed in a speech at dinner on the first night of the meeting and opposed by someone else wilde was opposed by george curzon who attacked him in a brilliant humorous witty but deadly speech in such a very scathing way that he never could be induced to go to another meeting of the club as an undoubted member of this club he certainly could claim to know the other members and he actually passed one saturday to monday at crabbet in their company he never forgot it 
and never forgot to refer to them by their christian names ever afterwards but none of them ever came to wilde's house or asked him to his with the solitary exception of george wyndham under circumstances which i have already detailed on the only occasion on which i attended a meeting of the cravat club i was proposed by george wyndham and opposed in a friendly way by hubert howard who was afterwards killed at the battle of omdurman the crabbit club was only a club in name there was no subscription and no entrance fee and admittance to it was simply by invitation of mr blunt who used the annual occasion of the meeting of the club as a pretext for a charming and most lavish hospitality i was actually the last member to join it and the year i joined was the last year of its existence one of the rules of the club was that prime ministers bishops and viceroys were not eligible for membership and that any member found guilty of attaining such positions should be at once expelled nothing was said about convicts but when two of the members lord curzon and lord horton became viceroys and one oscar wilde was sent to prison mr blunt came to the conclusion that the crabbit club had better be wound up and it lives now only as a glorious memory and by virtue of a privately printed volume of prize and other poems mostly of a satirical nature which would make the fortune of a dealer in rare books if he could get hold of a copy i may be excused for mentioning with pride that i won the lawn tennis tournament of my year and divided the honours of the prize poem with the late mr godfrey webb known as webber to his numerous friends to be strictly accurate mr godfrey webb was declared the laureate of the year and invested with a laurel wreath while a special prize was awarded to me for my poem it was a beautifully bound edition of surrey's and wyatt's sonnets and i regret to say that i left it behind me at naples along with a great many other valuable and interesting books in the charge of oscar wilde when i handed over my villa to him all these books wilde sold or lost soon after i left naples the prize for the lawn tennis tournament i still have in my possession it is a handsome silver cup of the georgian period and is inscribed as follows in youth and crabbed age crabbit club 1894 end of chapter 5